Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome everyone to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 33. Building and Flying the Xenos Motor Glider. So the Xenos is Sonics Aircraft's long-wing motor glider derivative of their basic Sonics design. Uh, it sports a, a bit different dimension. It has a 40-foot wingspan, a longer fuselage with a Y-tail, and it has a flapless wing that uses ailerons and spoilers. So it's really designed more as a touring motor glider than a trainer or it's definitely not a high performance glider, but it's really in that touring kind of category. And it has a small but a loyal following with Sonics pilots. So our guest today is going to tell us all about his Xenos and how he enjoys flying it in the mountains of Colorado. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me tonight is John Gillis, my good flying buddy. Gary Motley is off tonight, and so we'll hear from him next time. John flies his Jabiru-powered YX, and he's best known for his custom mods, including his speed cowl, his tilt-back canopy, toe brakes, and a bunch more. So, John, uh, I hear that ice season is a common, and you've been pretty busy at work, huh? Actually, the ice season is ending. Um, I work for the Antarctic program, and uh, we're pulling people off the ice. So, been pretty busy with, uh, with work and not too much time with uh, flying, but uh, we'll get everybody off in the next week or two and then uh, get back to uh, finishing up the annual on the WayX and finishing up my uh, commercial glider pilot license, which I'm going for with the, uh, the local club. So, John, um, just uh, kind of looking in the crystal ball here, how do you think your training is going to wrap up? Is it going to be just a few more weeks or do you think it's going to stretch on until summer or how's this going to go? Oh, no, it's a few more weeks. Um, I've uh, taken the written commercial glider past that i've gotten the uh the sign offs from my instructor uh for my three flights to take the uh, practical and so i just got a schedule with the uh, in the examiner to go up or actually do the oral and then do the uh to go up and and do the procedures so uh within a month and what are you going to do your check right in uh Schweitzer 233 okay all right well cool from the back seat. Yeah, now you're making me think that that's what I should have done. I only, uh, you know, I, I only did the regular glider license, so now I'm going to have to catch back up. Yeah, <laughs> kind of goal is maybe I go for CFIG, but uh, uh, the biggest difference is uh, the club. My club really wants some commercial uh, pilots because they have a, a flush of uh, people wanting uh, discovery flights. And there aren't enough pilots to take them up in the ASK-21 to uh, to do that. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the goal. Well, cool. All right. Good luck. Uh, keep at it. So our guest tonight is Dave Dooley. Dave completed his Jabiru 3300-powered Xenos back in 2011 and was one of the first customers really flying his plane, it, it, certainly within the, the first dozen or so. Dave flies Xenos 29 out of Erie, Colorado, and has done a bit of everything so as I've talked about before, my glider club has a Pawnee tow plane. It has, it had a 233. We have a Grob 103. We have a couple other single place. 
But what we don't have is a good motor glider. And I've been working on my glider club for a while to, to add a motor glider to the fleet. So they went out and bought a Grobe 109 and brought it back. And uh, it's kind of a disappointment, honestly. It just It's kind of a dog performing. So, Dave, I guess maybe I'll start there. If you're talking to a glider club that has experience flying a motor glider of one variety or another, and we're not talking about a STEMI or something really, you know, modern and cool, how do you normally kind of size up the Xenos when you're trying to put it in perspective? Well, you know, the Xenos is is, is, is a compromise. Um, like you said before, it's, you know, it's really a, um, I wouldn't call it designed for touring, but it, it does fit that... Uh, description fairly well i mean i was surprised how well it climbs in thermals it, it does do that but it doesn't penetrate at all of course you've got a propeller out there lots of drag so you know they the book numbers for elever d is like 24 to 1 and you know maybe it's a little optimistic you know to back up a little bit i'm i'm perfectly happy with it i've really enjoyed it it's been a wonderful airplane yeah and um i, I want to hear all about it i guess maybe uh, my, my first thought was is a Grob 109 or something like that, is that kind of in the same class, or would you maybe describe it really in relation to something else? No, I think, of course, I've never flown a 109, but, um, you know, just what I know of them a little bit, uh, I, w- I would guess uh, the performance-wise they're fairly similar. Um, my first guess is that they're fairly comparable. Okay. So you've been flying since 2011, and before we get into the whole the whole deal here, just the quick stats. How many hours have you got on it, both in you know engine running and in engine off time? I got about four hundred hours on the on the hobs, probably another hundred plus hours with the engine off. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a lot of time per year too. Yeah, it is. So, uh, of course, you know, with the airplane right outside your door, it makes it a lot easier. <laughs> so, Dave, a, a typical flight profile for you would be to obviously self-launch. Mm-hmm. Um, do you just take it up to uh, 10.5, you know, uh, I'm sorry, four or 5,000 feet AGL, turn the engine off and go play and see if you can find something? Uh, not quite. I usually power the engine way back and, and go just kind of like in the search mode and, and look for lift. Um, some days you tell there's no lift here on the plains, uh, so I just motor on into the hills, you know, where the chances of finding lift are better. But then I generally power the engine back and just do a like what kind of search for lift. And when I when I find it, um, get established in the lift and shut the engine off and see how long I can stay up. Have you uh, toyed with with trying to get into the uh, the wave? You know the famous mountain wave outside of Boulder. Oh yeah, I've had it uh, in the wave. I've never gone above eighteen, but uh, that's one of the modifications I did to, of course, is put oxygen in it. Um, that's kind of my my question was. Those guys have, uh, you know, they've been known to get up to 40,000 feet in that box that they have to, yeah. uh, to punch through the alpha airspace. Uh, but you haven't gone into that yet? No, I've, uh, of course, I don't have a, uh, you get 40,000, you, you need, uh, you know, the diluter demand pressure oxygen system when you're getting that high. Um, I just have a nasal cannula, which is only good to 18. Um, I guess I've got a mask. I could probably go to 25 um, with the equipment I have, uh, but I haven't done that yet. I've been at 18 and struggled to stay below it you know, in really strong lifts, so I have been tempted. 
<laughs> in my uh, my Jabiru Wax, uh, you know, I, I start to uh, have trouble just keeping it up at fifteen, but I haven't been up on the wave yet. So um, maybe I'll be up there with you someday. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know whether you want to get into the other aspects of the Xenos now or not. But uh, well, Dave, let's um, let's put that on hold just for a second and cover a couple of news topics, and then we'll come back and we'll hear uh, hear in detail about it. Okay. All right, so uh, the first news item we got on the list here is Sonics had a press release. Uh, not really a press release. They, it, it's a preliminary report out of the R&D shop, the Hornet's Nest R&D shop, and it covers the AeroV Turbo cooling system updates that they've been working on. So this report outlines the connection between the stuck turbo, and they've been having some, some reported issues with turbos sticking and losing power, and the oil coking due to excessive turbo temperatures really after shutdown. It's the heat soak after the turbo is, is shut down and it's cooking the oil inside the bearings. So that's been the problem and they've been investigating this. Some of the things that they reported in this preliminary report, the turbo bearing housing temperature was about 300 degrees after several minutes of sitting. So typical scenario, you land the airflow that was moving through the cowling is no longer there, so the turbo starts to heat up. Everything starts to heat up. Uh, you're not cooling the oil, and that's not cooling things. And so it gets hotter and hotter after you, you shut the engine down. And then after five or minutes or perhaps ten minutes, it reaches its maximum temperature, and then it just sits there and gradually cools off. And what they were finding was the temperatures of the bearing block we're getting to about that 300 degrees. And 300 degrees is pretty severe conditions for long exposure for any sort of oil. Whether you use a good, high-quality conventional oil, or even if you go to a synthetic oil, that's that's pretty tough duty for, for oil to handle. And that's what they believe the coking was happening. It's essentially cooking that oil onto the bearings. So they recently added a water cooling system that involved a small electric pump, a very small capacity coolant reservoir bottle, a, a, a radiator, and then they're using a waterless coolant that they say is good for in excess of 300 degrees. The whole system weighs about five pounds, and they plumb cooling water through the, the bearing block cooling passages on the, on the turbo, which up until now had been just left open to air. And that picks up the heat out of the bearing block, uh, moves it via the pump, exchanges it in the radiator, and then the fan blows fresh, cool air over the radiator. And the idea is um, you would run this thing after shutdown uh, on some sort of schedule, and that's what they're working to, to figure out. And that will positively pull that heat out of that bearing block and get it below that 300-degree mark. So they've done tests in various states, various uh, different options on the you know pieces of the system disabled and with the cowling on and off, with vents open and closed. And they're just essentially gathering data as to how the cooling system might be useful in bringing those temperatures down. Had some very encouraging initial results. And I think that the configuration that they're most interested in is sort of an automatic mode where you arm the system and it's not running in flight. Uh, you're getting normal air cooling of the turbo like, like normal. And then when you shut down the engine, the there's a temperature sensor in the cowling. It automatically detects that the system needs to run, and uh, essentially a thermostat switch turns on the, the pump and the fan. It runs for 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever's required to bring that bearing temperature down, and then automatically shuts off. And they're making sure that the current drain on the battery is going to be small enough that it's not going to 
create a problem when you go to make your start the next time. So that's what they're what the Hornets net is just working on. Uh, I found it very very interesting to see the raw data. I like that data set be able to really kind of see what's going on and and draw conclusions and I think that they are definitely on the right track here. So John, I know you've been following this right along with me. What were your impressions by reading through their report? Well, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um I've I've uh, had the the opportunity to see Carl's uh, turbocharger and those extra ports that were blocked off. And I asked him, I said, what are those ports for? And he goes, that's for water coolant of a automobile engine um, to cool the, the turbo. And it's like, well, why don't they use that to keep it cool after shutdown? So they're definitely going down that path and it makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. And I understand why they didn't go down that, that road initially. Uh, if you can get away with not adding all the various hardware, and it will it will work adequately with just convective cooling after shutdown. Why go through the cost and, and hassle of installing it? But I think what we're seeing is there there appears to be a connection between heat soak and oil coking. And the only way to do that is to reduce the amount of time that oil sits there and bakes onto those bearings. And that was one of Carl, who is a, a pretty good shade tree engineer on this. When he would shut down his engine... He, he would open up his cowl. He had a, a, you know, he had a big vent on top and he'd open it up and actually put a fan underneath it to, to get that heat out. But this system would do it automatically. Yeah. And I think Carl just sort of intuitively grasped, you know, he's got a lot of time and all, a lot of mechanical things, including VW engines. And, um, he realized that uh, getting that temperature down was, um, was going to be important. And so I think he has been on the right track. And this is going to be an automatic process that everybody also uses instead of stuffing the the fan vent up into the into the the exhaust. Well, and to give Carl a little more props, is he was the one that identified the uh, clocking of the turbo so that it would drain the oil out of the the turbo, and also the um, the added coolant and filter on it. So um, right, Sonics right. owes him a, owes him something, you know, just, you know, a bonus coupon or something for coming <laughs> right. up with some of the early stuff. Uh, a free uh, turbo aero he had or something like that. Yeah, you're right. Because uh, he hit on a lot of the same. And he was using Brad Penn oil. And he added the, the supplemental spin-on oil filter in addition to the mini sump. So he was on a lot of the same thinking that Sonics is, is on to. Yeah. And, and Carl's a true experimenter. And he's a he's a great asset to the uh, the entire turbo community on this. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he, he doesn't fly it all the time because he's got two other airplanes to fly also. But um, he's been getting good use out of it, and I've seen that thing. I mean, it, it really pulls, too. Oh, yeah. He, he drives it like a uh, rented mule, so Carl's not one to hold back. Uh, anybody who's ridden with his, uh, in his Nanchang in the back seat it knows that. Yeah, it only had two speeds, quiet and rumble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, there has been a ton of, of uh, discussion on this topic on the Sonics Boulder News Group. And I'm really glad to see uh, John and Mark come on there and present their findings and show everybody what they've been working on. Uh, it's really confidence inspiring to see them pour those details out. And I think that's what everybody was hungry for. And I've said this often, if you don't provide some sort of update, people will fill in their own narrative. And that's really, really dangerous because usually it's completely wrong. No, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. They've done well. Yeah. 
All right, so uh, next on the list, uh, John Corneal and his subsonics are in the news again. And this is pretty cool to see this. Uh, he was in the February uh, 2018 EAA Experimenter magazine. There's a nice little write-up, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, about a five-minute video that EAA put on their YouTube channel. And I have to say that um, every time that they show his airplane, they had a few little clips of him taxiing and going by. It just looks better and better. So I'm really glad to see he's getting wide exposure and he's really showing off the subsonics well. I'm, I'm really happy for him. And uh, it just makes me thrilled that, you know, here, here's another example of some guy who's following his dream and, and I love it. Glad to see him out there getting exposure. Well, and also what it's doing is it's it's uh, it's planting a seed for all of us wannabes to push some of our uh, airline pilot guys like Mike, if you're listening to this, um, <laughs> we need to, we need to get one of these and with five or six pilots and we'll all learn how to fly it and we'll just go out and have fun. Um, this is definitely within our our ability. So, Mike, if you're listening, subsonics. And he could totally commute to work in it and shave off like a half hour of drive time. It'd be perfect. Sign me up. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, there we go. We got we got four guys in Colorado that will do it. Yeah. Carl, <laughs> me, Dave, and Mike. Come on. How much is this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're on to something. I think uh, we just need to get a, a few more details ironed out and then a few people to start writing some checks. And I'm in, too, so let's do it. So once again, if you are in the greater Colorado area or you don't mind traveling and you want to get in on the Subsonics Flying Club, you need to send us an email. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So last up, there was a Sonics press release about First Flight Insurance Group releasing a little bit revised policy terms on their insurance. So for those not familiar, First Flight Insurance is USUA, the United States Ultralight Association, it's their insurance policy. They offer liability only. They really kind of targeted light sport and ultralights, and they have a, a pretty simple fee structure. It's just based on what type of airplane you're flying, what what the, the gross weight is, and, and some of that stuff. So you just kind of run down the list, and, and there's your premium. It's liability only. What they did that was significant is they raised the gross weight in their airplane category. Previously, it topped out at 1150 pounds. And so a lot of Sonics were ineligible if they had set their gross weight above 1150 uh, or they just didn't realize that that was even an option because they figured it was a ultralight based insurance. Now this policy goes all the way to the, to the light sport maximum. So for most of us, that's 1320 pounds and it very comfortably fits all the Sonics, including the Xenos. And that's what Sonics press release was talking about that. Now this is a viable option for the Xenos and the Xenos B I think it's a great option because we're going to talk about this very soon. If you are looking for low-cost, liability-only insurance, this may be the best option going. First off, there is very simple to qualify. You don't need dual instruction in a Sonics. You can get any sort of orientation time, so fly with another Sonics pilot, and that's good enough. You can even fly with another pilot in a similar handling airplane. No requirement at all for CFI, no no formal transition training or sign-off or anything like that. So it's easy to qualify from that standpoint. The rate is about $500 a year for something like a Sonics, and there's only a handful of options. There's a not-in-motion option for about 220 and then there's a terrorism option that you can elect for another 75 So if you're looking for, for a very trim, easy-to-get, 
inexpensive liability only policy, this is a great option almost across the board. Well, and Jeff, and I, I used USSA um, for my first flight in, during my phase one until I could qualify with enough time to, uh, to get a regular policy. So it, it worked fine for me. And I didn't I ex- you know, exercise it, but it, it, uh, it was comforting to know that I had, I think it was a million dollar liability on it. Right. And it, the policy, the liability part of it looks like every other policy, the million dollar, uh, liability limit. So in that sense, it, it's not gonna, it's not gonna look any different than another liability insurance. And for a lot of airports, that is an absolute requirement if you want to rent a hangar or a tie-down spot is you have to provide proof of liability insurance. So this is a way to do it. Well, one thing it doesn't provide is hull coverage. You know, you're not, if you roll your ball, your plane up in a ball on the end of the runway and walk away from it, you're not going to get any uh, payoff from that. Right, right. Well, and, you know, for a, a Sonics that was purchased or maybe scratch built, and the value of the airplane is, say, $20,000. It can be a bit of a bitter pill to find out that even for liability only, you know, you're looking at $1,200, $1,300, $1,500 a month, maybe, you know, depending on the pilot and its qualifications. And just to be able to get it to the, the local airport and tie it down, that starts to get to be a, a sizable expense compared to the cost of the airplane. So for that type of thing where somebody says, I'll self-insure, I just want to be legal and get a spot. Absolutely, Yeah. And, you know, the, the whole thing is, you know, if you're <laughs> during your, your phase one flight testing, um, you, you go damage your airplane on the runway, uh, you know, that's kind of on you. But if you ding that, uh, that Cirrus, you want to have coverage. Dave, um, what type of insurance do you keep on your Xenos? Uh, through the EAA, their uh, insurance that they offer. I guess the under underwriter is. It's through Falcon as the agent. Yeah, Falcon. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And are you happy with that plan? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I pay the premium, and of course, I haven't had to uh, use it, fortunately. So, um, but yeah, it was it's, and I didn't have to go through anything in my phase one testing. I just uh, yeah, I also keep uh, I keep Falcon just for you know I do have hull coverage on it uh, because it's not that much more. Yeah. Yeah, so do I. Okay. Well, we'll um we'll talk more about insurance when we when we get Gary on next time. I think that'll be uh, perhaps a full topic or at least uh, uh a kind of a deep dive as part of another one. But we'll get that knocked out here very soon. So with that, let's uh let's jump back into the the discussion about the Xeno. So Dave, before we hear all about everything, um why don't you catch us up? Tell us a little about about your flying background, kind of how you came up and and to the point where you thought you wanted to get a motor glider. Okay, I'll try to make it a short fairly short story cuz it involves quite a few years. I learned to fly in 1973. That sort of uh, dates me a little bit, doesn't it? And um Power airplanes first, and then uh, when I moved to Boulder, I uh, joined this local club and uh, Soaring Society of Boulder, and did a lot of glider flying. Owned a 15-meter single-place glider. It's called the Pick. I don't know if you're familiar with gliders or not. I had one of those for quite a while. Loved it. And um, then I got a little older and a little lazier, and I uh, decided, well, that's a lot of work, you know, going down to the airport and rigging it and signing up for a tow, you know, I think, boy, a motor glider would be really nice. Just take right off from my, from my runway. So uh, I retired uh, as a, from an aerospace engineer and uh, 
in 2006, and I said, oh, I need something to do. So, um, this is, you know, a motor glider would be really cool, and I this is when I started looking into Sonics. And, and uh, I did some looking around, and boy, the... Um, the bang for the buck, as far as what you get, uh, I wasn't. I was impressed. Just a few months right after I retired, I started cutting metal. Yeah, I think that we we've talked about um, you know gliders being a very social activity. It requires a lot of support. You got to people to run the wings, and and if you trailer and, and rig it every time, that takes time and space and help and then to tow. And so it, it's a team effort to to launch a few gliders on a weekend. If uh, if you can do it on your own with a motor glider, suddenly that opens up time where maybe the team isn't available and you can still go out and fly. Yeah, and, and the Sonics is is a lot like an airplane. You know, you got the long wings. You got to be careful. You know where, where you're taxing and so forth. But it's not like a um, self-launching glider. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with those, they're just they got a an engine that retracts. And uh, you got a wheel, that, a wing that's rolling along the ground. You got to be really careful where you apply those things out of. So you know the Sonics, you know, is pretty nice in that regard. You can um, pretty much go just about any any airport. You know, there's some airports you got to be careful. Where, you know, the runway or the taxi taxiway lights are are sticking up there and kind of close. But uh, I've never had a never had a problem. Never hit anything. So. It's worked out in that, in that respect. Dave, I'd like to hear kind of about your thought process. Um, you talked about wanting to, to get a motor glider so you could self-launch. What did you really kind of consider your mission as? And then how did you decide on the Xenos versus something else? Tell us about that thought process. Okay. Well, you know, I, once after I sold my glider, um, there was a separation issue where I didn't have anything to fly other than the club ships. And that worked out for a while, but uh, I said, boy, I really want my own glider. But, you know, where I live, I live in an airpark, and it, uh, it'd be hard to get just a pure glider up. And uh, so, I, you know, I just fell into a motor glider category. And, and um, as I mentioned, um, there weren't a whole lot available as far as building. The Europa was, I guess, available at one point. Uh, and there's a few other carat. And um, a few others, but they they were expensive. And um, on top of that, I, I'm comfortable working with metal. I have another airplane. It's a Swift, and it's all metal. And I've, I've done a lot of repairs on that. Working with metal, so I was comfortable with it. So that Xenos kind of fit that bill. That that narrowed it down to the Xenos pretty pretty much. Uh, it, like I said, the, the price is right too. And did you consider something like a, a self-launch sailplane as opposed to a motor glider? Not very long, like because I, I I know the limitations, um, and I I was really um, thinking of a the touring motor glider part of it too. I thought, well, that would be nice. You know, you, you could take it on a few trips if you wanted to. I can get into that aspect of it later if you want. But uh, okay. So yeah, it it's a, like I say, it's it's a flying compromise, but. Uh, it's not the best performing glider, and it's not the best you know, touring airplane, but uh, you know it does both fairly well. I'm ha- I'm uh, happy with it. There we go. Let's talk about the building process. So I think a lot of people are familiar with all the basic Sonics construction processes, mm-hmm. and, and this is very very similar. So maybe just tell us a little bit about and highlight some of the differences. Yeah, well, obviously the difference is the wing. I mean, the rest of it's pretty much Sonics. 
the wings, the spar is, is uh, I don't know, do you guys ever read uh, Kit Planes? Uh, you just had an article on he's building a Xenos and building up the Xenos spar. And it, it's it's a job. <laughs> I guess they offer a pre-built spar now. I don't, I'm not sure, but uh, uh, you know, that, that took a while to get done. But uh, more ribs, <laughs> obviously. The um, the spar, Dave, um, when you talk to a Sonics pilot or a Sonics builder who's completed their wings, I think most people will tell you that the spars, yeah, they're, they're a bit monotonous at times, but they're not particularly hard. And if they had to do it over again, they didn't mind building them. They weren't that big of a deal. Was was building the Xeno spar the same thing? Or was that like a test of faith to be able to get through that? No, not really. You know, <clears throat> like I say, I, I just enjoyed the building, you know, so... Uh, you know, given the fact that the, the spars were more involved and took long, you know, longer than regular Sonics, uh, uh, really wasn't a consideration. I, I just plugged away at it, and eventually I got them done. Uh, nothing particularly difficult about it. You just got to be careful what piece goes where. You know, I think the center web sections are like seven layers thick, and uh, you know, and you got different rib sizes you know, depending on the, where you are along the spar. Just had to be kind of careful with that sort of thing, but uh, yeah, I, I never had any particular problems with it. It went pretty well. Obviously, it takes a little more time. Yeah, so that that wasn't a major detraction no. from getting the thing done and completed. No. Okay, and then the airfoil is the same on the Sonics, I believe, but the cord and the ribs are quite a bit different. Is that correct? Not sure. I thought they went say like a Wartman type airfoil. It's got. A uh, you're probably right. I'm just going off memory here. Yeah, I think it's got a bit of a reflex to it. In the, okay. The well, then definitely. Yeah. So I, I think that I think it's per cord length. It's a little thicker, you know, than a Sonic swing. Well, it is thicker than a Sonic swing. I'm pretty sure. Uh, you know, the construction techniques are, are the same. But basically, it's a Sonics with a little, little more work, quite a bit more. Well, I wouldn't say. I also um, flush riveted everything, so you know that took a more time. Well, you lost me at flush rivet right there. <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of wing area right there. Yeah. Yeah. It took me five years, but, you know, it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Okay. So I, I guess uh, if we talk about in terms of the hardest or the most tedious part, what do you think that would be? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess I go back to the wings, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't say hardest, but just tedious. As far as the other stuff goes, uh, you know, you get a lot of help with building the fuselage and with you know from other Sonics builders, and you know because they're so they're, they're similar, almost the same. Yeah, there wasn't um, anything particularly difficult in, in the build. It's just uh, very very much like a Sonics. Yeah. Okay. When you think back on your building, is there anything that you felt like you learned the hard way that you, you'd like to point out that uh, <laughs> might save some people time when they're doing it? Well, I did a lot of things the hard way, but I, I don't know. I can't come up with one in particular. You know, fitting the wings, the fuselage, and getting those drilled out and reamed and good and tight and everything, that took a lot of study. And for me, anyways, that was kind of difficult to get it, to get it just right. What was the secret there to, to get the wings rigged perfectly? Oh, just uh, attention to detail. Make sure that uh, when you start drilling and reaming out, you got everything right. You know, it wasn't really that bad. 
Yeah, I, when I look back, um, I I had some cases where you look at the plans and you you think you know what they're telling you. Uh, and a classic example is in the wing, in the root area, there are some stiffeners. And nearly every other Sonics part is, you know, they detail the right part and then you make a mirror image left part, mm-hmm. except in the wing root. And there's a whole bunch of parts that are not mirror imaged. And so I had a, a really nice set of some some mirror imaged stiffeners in the wing root. And uh, and then I realized, ah, oh, wait a sec, these are all wrong. And so <laughs> if I had just looked at the plans a little bit closer, I would have realized that that was a quantity two, not a one right and one left. Yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> Of course, the little extra wings, uh, you know, the push-pull tube for the ailerons uh, has an idler um, bushing halfway through it, you know, because it's too long to have one con- long control rod out there. So I don't think the regular Sonics have that. That's a little extra. You know? And then there's the spoilers, but, of course, you got the flaps with the Sonics. So. Yeah. Now, I've never really closely looked at the spoilers. Um, they, they look like it's almost like a, a, a box that's inset into the top surface of the wing and then a, a simple hinge on it. Is that right or is there more to it? That's about it. Yeah, it's just a, yeah, it's just a uh, spoiler that covers up this well in the wing. And um, you know, it's got a, a spring in there that's pretty hefty that keeps them closed. And, and then you got a cable that pulls on the bell crank that opens them up and open the cockpit. Never had any problems with them. They look great. They're very, very effective. Never had a problem, you know, coming in a little high. It gets you down. How do those feel when they come out of the wells? Do you, you know, a lot, a lot of sailplanes when you when you first pop the spoilers out, you get that big sink. Yep. Um, and then they start to kind of move in a more linear fashion. Does the Xenos do the same thing? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very okay. similar. So they, they, is there like an over-center lock that you have to get over to, to release them, or is it all just sort of linear? I think when the spoiler gets above the boundary layer of the wing, and you, you know, you're starting to really get, break the air. Yeah. You're starting to go from a full lift of the wing to partial lift of the wing. It'll just drop real quick, you know, initially. Okay. Very similar on, on gliders. So uh, I don't know, you know, design-wise, they could do anything about that. You get that you know it's part of the design so right it's not a, never never an issue you just got to be ready for it yeah yeah that's one of the things uh, i noticed um the schweitzer that the 233 had really nice spoiler feel um uh it was very easy to kind of modulate and especially right there as you're skimming the ground you could just sort of work them to to get a perfect touchdown and then you switch over to something else um mm-hmm. like our our uh our, our grobe it you know when they come unlocked, man, you, you just you drop, and if you're at three feet of altitude and thought, well, I'm gonna scrub just a little bit off, you know, it just sort of thunks you down on the grass at that point. Well, typically when I landed, I use a, I'm landing, I'm, I'm doing my flare with partial spoilers, and then just as I'm ready to get in the three point attitude, I slowly pull the spoilers all the way on, and it just settles in. You know, that's it's, uh, works out most of the time. It works out that way pretty well. Okay. Well, um, how do you have your plane configured? Uh, we already know you have uh, a Jabiru engine, but tell us about props, instruments. You mentioned your oxygen mods, uh, all that. What other, what other features uh, do you have in your plane? Uh, I got the larger tailwheel. Um, I, had to, I had to rearrange my steering geometry to, to get more throw on the tailwheel because I, I couldn't get turned around in our runway here. So, so I... I um, Move the uh, the push pull tube for the for the tailwheel steering um, so that it would move a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Then I um, I got uh, 
toe breaks. I think, uh, John, you were involved with that a little bit, I think, uh, like what you put on the, on your wire. And um, let's see, I, I modified the canopy so I could keep it propped open a little bit for taxing, for cabin venting, you know, when you're taxing. A lot of the stuff other guys have done. Oxygen system, um, standard prop that they offer with the kit, with the, for the Jabru, uh, hydraulic brakes, uh, Tracy O'Brien brakes. What about your instruments? Um, what do you fly with and, and is that working well or, or are you looking at something different? That's working pretty well. I've got a, uh, uh GL Electronics, uh, Enigma Ethos. That's all other than a analog airspeed is the only analog instrument I put in it. Mm-hmm. Becker radio. Do you use a Vario or, or what do you yeah, use for that? Yeah, I've got a uh, Tasman total energy Vario. Okay. Uh, transponder because I, I live, live under the class B here. Okay. So, yeah, so everything you need and, and um, you say that's all working well then, huh? Yeah, no problems. Yeah, I have, uh, the uh, the map portion of the EFIS uh, because EFIS isn't, isn't the best. You know, if, if I go anywhere, I take my iPad. Yeah, and Enigma is a couple of generations, you know, before the latest stuff, you know, nowadays. And so it's easier just to carry an iPad with four flight than to try to pull out an Enigma and swap it to something else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but you know, it's it's worked well. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, get I get all all the temperatures I need and flight information. Yeah, and you mentioned your oxygen system. So describe that. I got a twenty-two cubic foot. Aluminum oxygen tank, and then a mountain high delivery system, um, which has worked perfectly. No problems with it. And I, I mount the uh, oxygen tank uh, behind the right side, behind the um, bulkhead, right above the baggage compartment. Uh, how much time is that cylinder good for? Hours and hours. Uh, it's very efficient. It's the okay. So you're not servicing it very often. Then. No, I, I fill the bottle two, three times a year at the most. Oh, that's, yeah, that's pretty convenient. Yeah. So, other than that, it's pretty stock. You know, the Jabru, I went with the uh, air injector carb on that. And it was a little finicky getting it tuned, but um, other than that, uh, it's, it's been working. working. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that um, you're you're getting cold at the higher altitudes? Do you, did you do anything for heat? No, not really. You know, when I'm up that high, I got the engine off. So uh, that that is another consideration is if you're going to spend hours and hours and it's like, you know, below freezing up there, um, you're wondering whether you're going to get it, be able to start it once you land. And uh, by the way, I do most of my landings with the engine off. Just got into the habit of doing that. And, and no problem. Okay. So are, are you way back in the mountains and, and doing a final glide all the way back to the runway? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. What's uh What's kind of the longest that you've done coming back like that? Well, I don't know. I've been around with a divide. It, uh, it's about thirty plus miles away. Um, you know, I my rule of thumb is uh, a thousand feet for every four miles. You know, how much? Well, that's good. yeah, that's still pretty good. Uh, you yeah, can, I mean, you can cover a lot of territory that way. Yeah, yeah. I also got a, a, a LX8000 Glide computer. It's a portable, you know, that's kind of a backup. Um, uh-huh. It can give you a lot of information, but it's hard to read. Um, in case my GPS fails, I got I got another piece of information in there. So I do have mm-hmm. that. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, next time you can call that your, uh, you know, Xenos uh, 
one, two, three on a 30 mile final. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I one time landed, um, and the battery was cold and it, it was the original battery. It was a couple of years ago. I think this happened and it wouldn't start after I landed. Yeah. You know, as I just think about that, that might be a case for um, a second battery, you know, like one of the lithium batteries that doesn't really do primary, you know, engine starting and, and all that duty, but it's just sort of a supplemental in case you need it for a restart or, you know, you got a battery that's topped off and, you know, more resistant to the cold that can zap that thing back to life. Yeah, that's a good idea. I I put in, a, I got a couple of solar panels I put in there on the glare shield uh-huh. and I thought, you know, I'll just... To turn those on, you know, after I shut the engine off and uh, to see if it'll keep the uh, bus voltage up a little longer. And I don't really have enough data to, to say whether it was worthwhile doing that or not. You know, I, if I had to just guess um, the size of the glare shield, I would I would think that you would get about a double A battery's worth of power over a typical flight. <laughs> yeah, that's probably. I don't, I don't know that it'd be doing a whole lot. Um, not that it, it couldn't hurt, but I, I just, I think it'd need more. One thing I notice, you know, if I'm doing a lot of soaring and flying with the engine off, you know, day to day, the, the bus voltage is dropping. Mm-hmm. So I I got a, a jack in the cockpit where I can just charge the batteries easily without having to pull the collar off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do that sometimes. Well, let's talk about the, the, the flying and handling characteristics. So, so tell us about how does the plane feel? You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to compare it only to a Sonics, but we know a Sonics is very snappy and handling and aerobatic. How does the Xenos feel? What, is it, what does it feel like when you're flying it? Well, I, I haven't flown a Sonics. Um, I've flown RVs, and of course I got my Swift. And uh, in pitch, uh, it's very sensitive to be expected. And in, in yaw and roll, um, not so much. You know, it's a glider. Big old heavy wings out there. And... Um, so if you've uh, anybody has flown a glider, it, it, it kind of it flies like a glider. It's a it's a little weak on the rudder. Um, the first cross country trip I took it on, I went took it down to a, a touring motor glider association fly-in down at uh, Cottonwood, Arizona, and uh, it was a real rough turbulent day. And uh, I did a, had to do a crosswind landing in Page, Arizona, <clears throat> and. Uh, Listening on the radio when some guy in a bonanza was on his third try to get it down from the crosswind. So, uh, but I got it down, but um, it uh, it wasn't pretty. But it it is a little weak on crosswinds. I have about a ten mile or not uh, crosswind limit on it uh, to be comfortable with it. So yeah, and I think the V tail um, is working against you a bit there too. Um, the the Y X reports a little bit lower crosswind capability as well yeah but as far as <clears throat> the rest of the flying car- the stalls are no issue um a lot of times when i'm really cranking in a thermal I'm, i've got it right above stall and I'll, you know i'll hit some more turbulence and, and the wings will stall and it just ease off on the stick a little bit and it just keeps on going any tendency to spin at all no um can you spin it or have you spun i've it? tried uh, during the phase one flight testing um you know, I had had the parachute on and everything, and I got up to about you know fifteen thousand feet, and and I tried everything I could think of to get that to drop a wing, and it wouldn't do it. Okay. So maybe it's just my airplane or you know my technique or whatever, but I I couldn't get it to spin. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, does Sonics count it as aerobatic, or or what do they what do they say about that? It's kind of 
yeah, if you limit the gross weight to eleven hundred pounds or eleven fifty or is it ten fifty? I forget now. Uh, they have what they call these aerobatic tips, which I've never seen. Uh, I don't know if they actually sell them. It's a smaller wingtip. Uh huh. And uh, I guess it's um, it's certified for aerobatics. Uh, I've never uh, considered aerobatics, and to tell you the truth, um, uh, I've got a uh, I mentioned a Swift airplane that's better suited for that sort of thing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I don't even consider aerobatics with it actually. But as far as just the brute strength of the Sonics, it's known for how strong those wingspan or those wing spars are. And I would imagine the Xenos is pretty hefty as well. I don't know if this is true or not, but way back once upon a time, uh, either before when I bought the Xenos, I was told they did static uh, load testing on the wings to 11 Gs. They had some yielding, but no failure. And you never got the sense that in turbulence that you were going to overstress those wings or anything? No, but um, turbulence... That's the other point I wanted to make out as far as using this as a, as a touring airplane. Uh-huh. If there's any thermals out there, rotor, any kind of turbulence at all, it's a real rough ride. Hmm, okay. Yeah, that's, that's one thing about it. Um, it uh, gets bumped around a lot. You know, I, wing loading was, what, about eight, eight pounds per square foot? You know, that's pretty light, so. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and you mentioned uh, the, the book of 24 to 1. Uh, and that you were seeing a little bit less. Uh, what, just in, in broad brush perspectives, how would you characterize it as a soaring machine? Uh, I'd compare it to a 233 Schweitzer. Uh huh. Okay. And, and what we always used to say is that, you know, the 233s, I mean, they thermal great. They're just not, they're not great at, at other things. So, yeah, that, that's the same, you know. I always thought about trying a um, featherable prop on it. Uh huh. But I've, I've been, uh, Reluctant to even get into that because um, you know, there's a lot of uh, engineering testing, you know, prop engine combination vibrations and so forth that I I, I didn't want to get into. So yeah, and I'm not sure what the expected um, performance gain would be. Undoubtedly, there'd be some, but uh, how much and yeah. and would it be worth it? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a great compromise, and it's you know terribly convenient. And you might lose a bunch of that to pick up a little bit of performance. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it doesn't have the penetration. Um, one other thing I've done with it is I wanted to see if I could air start the engine without the starter. Uh-huh. And um, I did do it. It lost over 2,000 feet uh, doing it. What speed did you have to glide at in order to get the prop to start turning? Uh, at least 90. Okay. Yeah. I've never tried it in mine, but, but you know, the, the Jabiru is such a tight engine anyway that I wasn't sure how that would work. Yeah, it, it took it took at least 90 miles an hour, and it, um, you got to get the mixture just right when, when the prop is starting to turn and all that, you know, so it's, it's, not, a, it's not a given that you're going to be able to do that. Um, yeah. I just wanted to see if it could be done. I, yeah. I did it once, and okay. <laughs> So ninety miles an hour, two thousand feet, and uh, and it's a little touchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'd never try to hand prop it. I don't know about you. Would you ever even consider? Never. I wouldn't even try it. I, you'd throw your shoulder out before you, you know, you had success. Yeah, and that thing fires, and it does start. It just fires up so fast. That, uh, yeah, yeah. You, know, it, you would you would kill yourself because. You know, you're you're thr- flinging that prop just as much as you can, and if it's 
if it's below the minimum RPM, it's just going to shrug it off. And then when you do hit that magic RPM on one Herculean throw, it's going to fire up and, you know, and jump up to eight, 900 RPM just like that and, and then eat you for lunch. Yeah. So I wouldn't do it. No, never, never would. So. Okay. So tell me, Dave, about the transition from plane to glider. So you're flying along, you're motoring out to where you want to go, and then you're going to shut down and go find some, some lift. Tell me about the transition. Okay, um, I, I slowed down to usually right around 70 miles an hour and a couple thousand RPM. And I'm just kind of cruising around trying to find lift. And, um, you know, if the barrier looks good and um, I, I got good solid lift, I'll turn in it and I'll say, okay, how consistent is this? And then, um, oh, yeah, it looks like it's, I'm going to get, you know, it's going to be sustainable, sustainable lift. So I, I make sure that, um, you know, I'm not going from up. Full power to shut the engine down. It's it, I, I let it cool down gradually, and um, um, pull the mixture. Make sure I shut the fuel off because I want to be able to maybe start it later. And um, keep on climbing. Like I mentioned before, it, it, it does climb quite well. I was surprised. Uh, uh-huh. Even in weak lift, it'll 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 get it'll go up. You can really crank it around. Um, I'm never I'm never concerned about dropping a wing or doing funny anything funny on me. Yeah. Do you have like a, a targeted engine cooldown period or do you just sort of go by feel like, you know, it's been idling for a couple minutes and that's good enough? Yeah, I only, you know, even a minute is probably enough it, unless I've been going right from, you know, 75% power on a cruise. I'll, I'll, I'll fly slow for a couple minutes. But, um, yeah, I don't um, I don't like to thermal shock the engine. So Yeah. So you pull the mixture, the the engine shuts down. Um, you're already at, as you said, about seventy. So it's not going to windmill the prop, then, I guess, huh? No, it's it stops right away. <laughs> okay. And, and then, do you have to blip it to get the prop horizontal, or does it always stop horizontal, or how do you do I that? I got to blip it every now and then to get it where I want it. Just as long okay. as I get it out of my sight picture for when I'm landing, and I don't want a prop sticking out there. Well, that's still a pretty easy transition. It's basically just take care of the engine, and and when you're happy, shut it down. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, not much else to do, you know. My EFIS will say no oil pressure, no oil pressure. Well, of course not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, and I've I've like air started it and uh, started it in air, started on the ground. Uh, I'll usually I always keep myself within gliding range of an airport. It's not like a a self-launching glider where you have an option of landing in the field. Xenos is too close to being an airplane. Um, I wouldn't uh, right. consider landing it in the field unless, of course, I actually had to. Uh, right, not- yeah. yeah. You talked about the bus voltage slowly dropping. Mm-hmm. So if you had a great day, lift was just booming, um, would you have any concerns to shut the engine down and run your instruments for three or four hours before you ran out of battery power? Well, I watched uh, bus voltage, and if it gets much below 12 volts, um, I head for home. And, and uh, I, you know, if I'm like at 18, 17,000 feet, I don't want to try to start it there because it, the engine's cold. So um, I'll uh, glide to wherever I want to go, and uh, hopefully the engine will warm up a little bit or it won't get any colder anyways. And, mm-hmm. and then uh, do my start if I, if I want to start it. So would a would a three hour gliding flight be any problem? No, I've done it probably three hours, close to three hours, at least two and a half. 
you know, if I think, uh, okay, the bus voltage is, you know, 12, 12.1 volts or something, I'll shut the radio off or something, you know, that's always an option. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times yeah. you're hearing a lot of chatter on the radio, and I understood anyway, so. Right, yeah, I know. I, I do that a lot, too. I'll switch over to guard just to get the chatter out of my ears. Yeah. Okay, well, Dave, tell me about your performance numbers. Um, you know, all the stuff that we, that we care about, your your min-sync airspeed, your best LD, your stall speed, your approach speed, all those things. Best LRD speed, uh, I found out it's right around between 55 and 60 indicated, depending on weight, and um, a little higher if you're heavier. And um, minimum sync is just right around 50 to 55. Uh, if I'm thermoing really tight, you gotta pick, you got to get it a little higher because it, it will start to nibble at the edge of a stall. Hmm, okay. Your your rate of climb will go down, <laughs> you know, if, you're, if the wings are stalling on you a little bit. Let's see. The um, approach speeds and pattern, you know, I, use, I use 65, 60 to 65, depending on the winds and so forth. More if it's really windy. Cruise speeds, like 2,800 RPM. Um, it'll cruise along at uh, truing, uh 130, 35 miles an hour. Yeah, which is great. I push it, you know, 3,000 RPM. Um, I'll, I'll get a, close to 140 out of it. Yeah. And you said you took it to Oshkosh. What, what kind of speed did you see going to Oshkosh? About those speeds, you know. It, it, was, it was pretty good. You know, if it's really rough out, um, you really don't want to fly it that fast. That's the problem, you know, because right. it's just way too uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess uh, that confirms that aside from, like you say, the the light wing loading, which there's just not a lot you can do about, mm-hmm. it sounds like it makes a, a pretty efficient airplane at those speeds. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's, not, that's not a bad speed for, you know, 120 horse anything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's real good. Okay, and we talked about the spoilers. But what about like other situations, not not necessarily on landing or on approach? Any problem using spoilers when you're trying to get out of lift or, you know, any other time that you would want to use them? Or are they completely conventional in that sense? I'd say they're pretty conventional. You know, I've, I have used them to, to uh, like times I've been in lift and, and, and going up like crazy and getting close to 18,000 feet, you know. So, so, so I pull them on and uh, solves that problem real quick. What does your rate of descent do when you have them fully closed, and then when you put them fully on, what's that change in rate of descent? You're talking 250 feet a minute to over 1,000. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it comes down pretty well. I was surprised Yeah, that's... That, they, that they worked as well as they do. It's never been an issue. So you were, you were talking about a typical flight, take off, you motor around, find some lift, but... How often do you fly it more like a like a pure airplane and just kind of go mess around under under power? And how much are you out there, you know, looking to get that three hour glider flight? Like, what's your kind of split, or do you tend to just sort of make it up as you go? I usually make it up as I go. Um, you know, if, if the sky looks promising and I and I've checked the soaring forecast and you know it's good, you know, I'll go out there and plan on doing a soaring flight if I can. And you know, days like. This time of year, where there's not much going on, unless you want to get into the wave or the rotor, I'll just fly it around as an airplane. But I would say that's less than five or ten percent of the time. I have another airplane if I want to just go more holes in the sky. I usually take that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that does take some of the stress off too. Mm-hmm. 
what do you think your longest um, glider flight is in the Xenos? I say over two and a half hours, and could have been longer. After a while, I just say, "Oh, this is fun. Time to go home." Yeah, that's the problem I have. I'm I'm like I'm having a great time, and then it's like I flip a light switch. It's like okay, I'm done. I'm time to time to go. And you know, some of the weight flights, you know, um, with the engine off, you know, I don't have even if the engine's running, I don't have cabin heat, so you know, the feet start getting kind of cold. Right. Yeah. And then there's the case of your bladder. Right. <laughs> two two and a half hours is usually enough for me. You know, I've never been able to really go cross country as a glider. You know, I mean, I'll get I'll get out of range of uh, my home airport, but I've always got another airport, you know, within range. Mm-hmm. But you know, I've always thought, well, let's see how far I can get. But um, if you're out there over the divide where the lift is, uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. you're 30, 40 miles away from an airport, a lot of airports. So you got to be pretty high, and if you don't find that next thermal. You're starting to look at, well, okay, I got to hit for an airport here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. lack of lighting performance comes into play <clears throat> when you're trying to do any kind of cross country unit. You know, a, a glider that has L over D of 50, 50 to 1, they got a lot more options. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like you said, um, you know, landing out in a field someplace is really not an option you want to entertain. So you, you might you probably end up bending or breaking something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I've landed gliders in fields, but I've never landed this one. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk about some of the unique challenges of a motor glider. So first off, training and certification. If you are coming from a glider background, no problem there, right? What's it like to, to get a motor glider endorsement? No big deal. Uh, I went. There wasn't anybody locally, so um, I flew down to um, Peyton, Arizona. There is a outfit down there that uh, has a motor glider they'll give you a, a self-launch endorsement so if you've got a glider rating um all you need is that self-launch endorsement and you're good to go and that's probably just a what a couple of flights and yeah that was very very simple very straightforward um one caveat there is that uh, you know if, if a guy builds a xenos and he has no power time and he gets his you know he's got a glider rating and he gets a self-launch endorsement, uh, they're not ready to fly the Xenos. <laughs> it's more like an airplane. Yeah, yeah uh, that's right. And yeah. I, you know, I, I did license it as a glider. It's not a, it's not light sport. So. Yeah, and I, I guess that's the next question. If you were coming from a powered plane perspective, you would have to make a decision to, to register as a home-built airplane or a glider, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose you could do either one based on whatever you wanted to do, right? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, as I think as there's some advantages as registering it as a, as a glider. The medic issue probably isn't much of an issue now with basic med, but you have that thing. And they don't, they don't have any restrictions like, like sport, you know, no gross, gross weight, no speed, no. I think you could even fly it at night if you had lights on it. I'm not even sure, but... Uh, yeah. Well, I think you're right. Uh, registering it as a legit motor glider is definitely an advantage um, if you're already a glider pilot. The only reason I think anybody would even consider just registering it as an airplane is if they wanted to avoid that whole glider rating problem. That's a silly move, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, because even getting the glider rating, if you've got a power rating, is you know, like 10 flights, you know, as you well probably know. 
Yeah, the transition is not hard, and I, I found it uh, a whole lot of fun, and it really opened up a whole other realm of flying. Oh. So I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, so, you know, it, that would be the way to go. Anybody's thinking about a Xenos, that, uh, you want to register as, as a glider. Yeah. So if you were a pure glider guy coming to it, what what would you use to kind of do some of your your airplane type training to get ready to fly a, a, a Xenos? Well, uh, yeah, I guess the big thing is is uh, you learn to learn you know engine systems and it, it um, that's kind of a big jump if you don't have a power rating you just got a glider rating uh, jumping right in you're actually jumping into an airplane and uh, you know that's probably a loophole in, in the FAA regs uh, that you really have to be careful with because I think it would take a fair amount of training if you don't have a power rating not only is it you know, an airplane. It's also it's a tail dragger. Oh yeah, that's right. So um, you got that issue too. So um, you know, if you're thinking you don't have a power rating, you're thinking of building a Xenos, you know, fly as a as a, as a glider. Plan on getting a lot of power instruction. Yeah. Okay, that's a good point. Glad you pointed that out. What about airport operations? You talked about taxiing, but but taxiing and ground handling, you know, on the ramp, in the hangar, what is that like? You just got to be careful, I guess. You, you just keep in mind you've got those wings sticking out there. Uh, uh, I mentioned, As I mentioned earlier, I had to modify the ge- steering geometry a little bit so I could make a little tighter turns. On my first flight, I couldn't get it turned around at the, on the, run, the end of the runway, so I had to shut the engine off, <laughs> get outside, and pick the tail up around because, you know... <laughs> So I fixed that right away, but um, I thought about putting a, a, a full swiveling tail wheel on it, but uh, I haven't decided to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my hangar, fortunately, is the hangar door is wide enough that it'll accommodate a 46-foot wingspan, but a lot of hangars won't. So I think that's something to consider if you're going to build one is, is where you're going to keep it and um, you know, you can you can make a dolly or something that you could push it in sideways if you had to. Or I guess there's ways around that, but uh, I guess that's another consideration. Yeah, and your wingspan is what again? I think it's just under 47 feet, 46 something. Okay. Mm-hmm. The wingtips on your Xenos, are they removable? Or I, I got this notion in my head that there's like a short tip and a long tip, and they're like piano hinge. You pop out the hinge and you can take the tip off. Maybe you just tell me about that. Yeah, it's not quite that straightforward. Yeah, you can kind of pop it off, but to, to get at the pins, to pull the pins, unless I've modified the design somehow, you got to disconnect your aileron. you got to lift the aileron up so you can get the pins out. So it's not a quick remove tip. No, it's, it's just it has the provision to be removed should it be needed to. Exactly. Okay. I've never even – in fact, I don't even know if Sonics offers the uh, – I think they call it the aerobatic tips, the shorter tips. Um, I haven't seen it in their online catalog, but maybe they do. I don't know. But I, I, I never consider it anyways. I, you know, the long tips aren't a problem for me. So. Yeah, and I guess maybe that would be attractive if you had a, a smaller hanger and you just had to have a smaller wingspan. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, we, we hit on insurance a little earlier, but you said that there was no real particular challenge getting insurance for the Xeno. So. No, but it might have been, you know, I've had uh, – Power, tail drag, a lot of tail dragger time, a lot of glider time, you know, CFI, G, and commercial glider and all that. Maybe that made a difference. I don't know. 
So you're a well-qualified candidate. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, taking all this together, the performance, the handling, the buildability, the cost, its strengths and weaknesses, what do you really think the target customer for the Xenos really is? If you could kind of wrap it up and, and summarize, what is that? What is this thing really targeted for? Anybody that likes to fly gliders and doesn't have the access to a glider port with tow planes and so forth and gliders, but they've flown gliders or they, you know, they think they like gliders anyways. And this is a really good way to get into gliding, albeit, uh, you know, not high performance gliding, you know, in, in, in a reasonable expense. And I think I mentioned the, uh, there are other motor gliders out there. I'm not aware of how many two place motor glider kits are available right now. Um, I can't even come up with one right now. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any that are currently being built in any sort of numbers. There's probably some some almost custom, you know, type of low, low production stuff out there. But but that's so far on one end of the spectrum. Yeah. Nothing like the Xenos. Yeah, yeah. I think your options are to go buy a, an old used, um, you know, antique or like a like a Grob 109 or something like that. Um, I just don't know that there's really any other competitors anywhere close to that price. You're right. I think I agree, and uh, you know, if you like to build, you want to fly a, a glider that that you can't get toes where you live or whatever. You know, this is one good option, I guess. Yeah, I had talked to my glider club and and mentioned that even if you bought a new B model quick build and put a Jabru engine in it and a decent panel, you'd still have a brand new motor glider for sixty five or seventy thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You, you just, I mean, you couldn't even buy a used one in the same. You know, price range. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think you get you get pretty good bang for the buck with the Sonics. Yeah. Well, and again, um, it has to provide what they think a sweet spot of price and performance and compromises, and um, everybody's going to come up with a little bit different equation. I, I think that they've done a good job of making it appeal to the broadest number of people. I'm. Uh, I've been a little surprised that there aren't more Xenoses flying or being built. I think there's like 65 out there. Is there that many now? I, I think so. I think that was the number that I, I saw when I went and looked. Uh, actually flying or uh, on your- Well, I no, I, I don't think actually flying. I think there was only, I don't know, 20 or 25 that were in the completions directory. Yeah, I think it, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I don't know how much you know about the, the B-model Sonics, and they and they transferred a bunch of the B-model uh, upgrades over to the Xenos. Uh, the big ones are that you get a little bit bigger fuel tank, you get a little more room up front, and a few other uh, refinements. I guess uh, uh, more engine options too, right? Or something. Yeah, that's right. And they're they're starting to support UL power and mounts for Rotax, and so all those things are transferable over to the Xenos. Mm-hmm. But I guess what I what I'd like to know is what would be on your wish list for a next Xenos. Like if you were thinking, Hey, I, after five years of this thing, building and flying it, this is what I would really like to see in a, in a Xenos. So if you were advising Sonics on the C model Xenos, what would you ask them to put in the C model? Well, I, I think a featherable prop would make a fairly good difference in this performance. Um, other than that, you know, um, you're not going to be able to, clean it up any more as far as getting more performance aerodynamically, you know, maybe add a few fairings here and there. I think one thing that would help too is put a little thicker 
wing skins on the on the top of the wings. You get some uh, oil canning buckling on the top wing skins. Yeah, that's right. I had heard that before as well. I think if they went to a little, you know, I think it's old 25, uh, at least in the uh, inboard uh, up until the end of the, under the spoiler, maybe the next bay out after that, go to, uh-huh. go to a, what it would be, a 32? Either that or some, more, some intermediate ribs to okay. stiffen those skins up a little bit. I'm not sure how much that's costing performance. It's got to be a little bit. You know, because if you if you can get if you can get to twenty six, twenty eight, close to thirty to one, you know, you're, you're talking uh, you know reasonable riding performance if you can get up to that realm. Yeah. Okay. So we'll call it um, a, a little thicker wing skins, and especially in the root area mm-hmm. on the tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll call it some landing gear, some tailwheel geometry modifications, mm-hmm. a little bit of aerodynamic cleanup, possibly through some fairings or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the feathering prop to cut down your your gliding drag. Yeah, yeah. I, okay, we'll we'll give that as the to do list to Sonics for the for the C model Xenos. <laughs> there you go. We'll see how long that. Gets. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then the the last question uh, <laughs> is, when Sonics comes out with the C model Xenos, would you ever consider building another one? <laughs> I don't know. I might. Well, there yeah, you go. I might. Um, you know, I I thought about. Rebuilding, making another set of wings to, to to get rid of those wrinkles. You know, I said, well, that's a lot of work to just to get rid of some wrinkles. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but if I could build, um, you know, with not much more cost, uh, another Xenos that performed uh, five, eight points better L over D, you know, it might be worth it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it would be simpler to build because the um, the improvements to the pre-machine components and all that, it's a faster airplane to build. Just, just flat out. Oh yeah, and then you got a little more room inside the cockpit, which might make it easier to put, um, you know, maybe some insulation or some, mm-hmm. some other goodies in there for some creature comforts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll tell Mark that you would like to be uh, the first customer <laughs> on the referral list for the C model. Oh, there you go. I won't hold my breath on that one. All right. Well, uh, Dave, as you kind of think back on all these topics and building and operating and all that, let's uh, let's wrap this up with just some advice. If you're going to give people who are thinking about a motor glider or a Xenos project or buying a flying airplane, what advice would you give them? Well, if you want a motor glider and you don't want to spend a ton of money, and uh, you know, you don't, if you like building things and uh, you're comfortable working with metal. Um, I can't, you know, the Xenos, I think, is the way to go well, for what's available out there now today. You know, if you got a ton of money, you know, you can go buy a STEMI but, or something like that. But, uh, you know, I talked to a guy that owned the STEMI, and he says he didn't like it. Too cumbersome or something. It was, it's a lot of work. I can't get over just the the price. You know, those those are beautiful airplanes. You know, all those in that in that top tier are just fantastic performers and all that, but but man, that's so far out of the range of mere mortal price ranges that I just can't get over. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and you really you you look at it and you think back. Well, you know, yeah, I can go farther in a higher performance glider, and you know, maybe do a more cross country. But I'm having a lot of fun with the Xenos, you know. So uh, it's fit, you know, fit the bill pretty well for me. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, I appreciate all those thoughts, and, and I, I really enjoyed hearing um, how you use your Xenos. It, it uh, shed some light on, uh, I think, uh, a segment that not a lot of people really have been exposed to. 
So hopefully they will consider that when they're thinking about new and fun things they want to get into. Yeah, yeah. Because well, I say they'd have the corner of the market because uh, not a lot of available out there, especially in that price range. Yeah. Well, good deal, Dave. Um, we are going to be doing the uh, the Mile High Flying again. It'll be at Meadow Lake in September. It'll be in conjunction with uh, the the larger Meadow Lake Flying going on. Okay. But uh, uh, look forward to seeing you down there. You got to bring it on down yeah. and, and um, well, look, yeah. enjoy I'll the day. Plan on it. I don't know. If they had one this last year, didn't didn't they? No, we the weather just socked everything oh, in, and great. it just turned so lousy that it was canceled. That's right. I remember now. Yeah, I'll try yeah. to make it down there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and rather than try to doing it in the in the spring, uh, we thought we'll do it in the, in the in September. You know, the flying will still be good, mm-hmm. and so it'll just be easier than trying to deal with the unpredictable spring early spring weather yeah. so right okay yeah so i look forward to, to seeing you at uh at the fly-in that'll be fun yeah me too um i'll uh, look for it the announcement whenever yeah absolutely all right well um I, I got a quick shout out here and this one goes out to tim reed uh tim was a guest uh a few months ago on sonic's flight he uh, has been working on his fuselage and as the newer kit builders know uh, sonics does not provide seatbelts anymore and that's because the manufacturer of their old seatbelts tough toe or arrow tough or whatever it is tough tough something um, the manufacturer actually passed away in uh, very unexpectedly and the company was sold and has not resumed uh, production so those seatbelts are, are are no longer available and sonics has been looking for a replacement supplier tim found a great solution that is coming out of the the jeep and the dune buggy community uh they're they're easy they're cost effective i think they're about 110 dollars per seat which is just a great price they're a three point double release retractable belt harness so what this is is you have your lap belt your two shoulder belts that that join into a single belt behind your head and there's a quick release right there. And then that strap goes back to an inertial reel that you would hang back there in the tail cone, just like normal. And uh, you have a push button style automotive seatbelt and lap belt and very comfortable. Everything's adjustable and they look great. You get them in black and a bunch of other colors. And for the price, they look like a great option. So if anybody is out there thinking about seatbelts or, um, you know, they, they do not have seatbelts yet, rather than looking at like a hooker harness or some other traditional GA manufacturer solution. Uh, those are great seatbelts also, but they're going to be probably four times as much than these. 110 per seat is a pretty darn good price. So you can find those. They are Corbu racing seatbelts, and I'll put a link in the show notes. They also, the company also makes a really nice heated seat option. It's very similar to the one I use in my Sonics. So you can get a package deal, get two seatbelts and two seat heaters and and you'll be uh, flying in comfort. So good job, Tim. Thanks for sharing that with me, and hopefully that's going to be a great solution for some other people out there. Dave, thanks again. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I'm glad that you are are putting on some serious time on your Xenos. That's really great to hear, yep. and uh, we're going to have to go fly some time. I'd like to go up and see the divide from, from, from your perspective. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, give me a call. Yeah, I'll come a little early uh, in September and we can uh, maybe sneak a flight in or something. There you go. Sure thing. Well, thanks again, Dave. And for everybody else, you can find the show notes on the web at sonicsflight.com slash 33. 
you can subscribe to the show through iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And of course, the, the show will be available for download directly from the website as well. Send us a feedback comment through the website or go to feedback at sonicsflight.com. Tell us, uh, tell us what you think about the topic list that we talked about last week. And if you got something on your mind or you want to contribute, send us a note and we'll get you into the rotation. Uh, we got a lot of really great topics to do this year and I'm looking forward to, to really digging into them. Dave, have a great weekend and, uh, send me some, some cool flying picks. Uh, if you get some Lenny's over, over the area or something interesting like that, send it to me. I'd like to see. Oh, I got a bunch of them. Yeah. I'll send you some. Yeah. Cool deal. I'll put some in the show notes so you can, uh, see it from, from the perspective of your Xenos. Okay. All right. Well, have a good night and I will talk to you later for everybody else. Thanks and fly safely. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Slight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.